Welcome back to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Laleve, sitting down here in beautiful Geelong, where it's always sunny, 25 degrees, even in the middle of winter. Okay, I'm lying. We're on Wadarun country, and I'm extending my respects and acknowledging the country that you're taking our podcast to, wherever that might be. If you do want to hit us up or find out more about where you guys are at, we'd love to know. Send us a message on Instagram or hello at humansofagriculture.com. Today we're crossing the ditch to Aotearoa, I think I said that right, New Zealand. My next guest is someone I met at the Xana McDonald's Summit in Brizzy earlier this year. She's a keynote speaker and what blew me away about Julia was just her authenticity and how she was able just to be herself. It was freaking cool and might have developed a slight crush on her. Hey JJ. Julia Jones has an extensive career in and around finance, markets, sustainability and agriculture. And what stood out to me for JJ, as I'm now allowed to call her because we're friends, is that she has held these kick-ass positions and has been able to be authentically herself. She's a straight shooter, saying it how it is, and I think that's something which has given her and grown her huge credibility across Australia and New Zealand and probably globally as well. It hasn't always been that way for her. So in today's chat, I wanted to know when and how did she actually develop this? At times, has it worked favourably for her or has it worked against her? And how has she developed as a person in business as a leader? And where does she see the next big emerging opportunities and trends for agriculture over the next five to ten years? So, strap in. Let's go. This week, we've got an exciting guest all the way from across the ditch. Actually, God knows when we're going to release this one, but we're recording it before the Bledisloe game. And so... There could be misery, depending on how this goes. Anyway, either way, Julia Jones, all the way from New Zealand, it's not going to affect our relationship and <laughs> our chat today. Welcome to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Are you okay if I call you JJ? Yeah, you go for it. You go for it. You call me whatever you like. And, you know, on that game, whoever wins has to buy the other one a jersey. A jersey? Jesus. Not like as in a cardigan. I mean, as in the rugby jersey from the team. Yeah, God. From the series? What about the World Cup? Let's put it off a little bit. Help on cash flow. Oh, that's soon. That's soon. I don't know. What do you reckon is going to happen in the World Cup, though? Who do you reckon is going to come up? Mm, to be honest, I like I follow AFL more than rugby these days. But I would say from watching the TV last year, Ireland were insane. So I'd say Ireland would be up there. Yeah, and they've got that real passion. I think they've got just that more, I don't know, it's probably because they don't play rugby every 30 seconds now, like, we do, and then I think you lose, I don't know, it feels like the game's losing its heart and its passion and its drive, whereas I think... You guys were like us. Early 2000s, we had John Eels, George Gregan, Stephen Larkham, Matthew Burke, like this golden era. Then you guys came through with Richard McCaw, Dan Carter, etc. And once you've been at the top, there's only one way from there. I know, and it's hard to find those real characters again, you know, those real people that just touch people's hearts. I mean, it's... I mean, my parents were from Liverpool and lived in New Zealand and they loved most of like the Australian players. Like mum could name every single one of them. Oh, that's good. So you, what, are you saying you're like a semi-Australian supporter or a fair weather supporter? No, no, not at all. Not at all. Actually, my brother lives in Sydney and he's super sport mad. Like he's mental about sport and he gets real torn. Like he just watches anything, but it's all, he's always all blacks. He is hardcore Kiwi supporter. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll avoid him. <laughs> Tell me, so where did you actually grow up? Your parents are from England, but you're a Kiwi born and bred. 
Yeah, so I'm the only one in the family born in New Zealand. So my mum and dad come over from Liverpool with my brother and sister um, to New Zealand. Ten pound poms, you know that whole thing where they'd go out and say, "Hey, come over." Then we went to Ross, which is I'm trying to think of a town that it would be like in Australia. There probably is nothing like it, but it's a tiny town in the west coast of the South Island, and it's about a hundred people live there. And so it was a rural farming community. It used to be an old gold mine back in the day. It was just such a cool place to grow up. We rode a horse to school because he went footpaths. Like, just crazy, man. It was just cool. It was, a, it was a great spot. And so were you guys on a farm? No, no, we were around them. But, I mean, mum and dad had immigrated, so they weren't farmers in the UK. So their family thought we had a farm. I think we had, like, one acre or something. We had a little paddock and a little tiny house. And, like, mum's family would write these letters saying, you know, it was amazing to see the pictures of your farm. And we had one ram called Charlie. He used to chase hitchhikers up the road and we had a calf and a horse and like a gazillion chickens and ducks and whatever else I used to bring home, but on goats, sorry, we had lots of goats as well. So it was just insane to back to the people in the UK and Liverpool totally thought we had a farm. And so this thing about one quirky named animals, but two, just having an absolute menagerie is something which you started as a child and has just definitely followed you into your adulthood. Oh, it has. And they're all insane. I mean, I know. Well, now I live in Eureka, which is like basically 100 people. And around, I live in the middle of a whole lot of farms. And then I've got like just under 10 acres and I've got a menagerie of animals. I've got four insane horses and three cattle. And one of them's about a ton and he thinks he's a dog. And it's just all, it's just mental. <laughs> what kind of parenting do you give to these animals to make them so wild? I don't know. You know what I think is I must baby them too much. Like they seem really needy. Like it's just like I got home one night from a speaking gig. It was about 10 o'clock and I was reversing into the carport and I seen in the camera the eyes, like a set of eyes, and they'd broken out and put themselves in the carport. And I I was just like two were on the lawn, one was in the carport. And I was just like, you know, like you just, you're tired. I just went and got like a big bale of loose and hay and just like got them to go into some paddock and I thought I'd sort it out in the morning. But it's just like this whole, I don't know, maybe it's because I like needy things. Maybe I'm needy, so I've made them a bit needy. <laughs> Even like in the mornings, on the weekend, I won't open my curtains. I'll be like, oh God, I'm just giving myself five minutes because then it's like mooing and neighing and, you know, like it's just. It's like, where's my bracket? Just hang on, guys. So this is worlds apart, and this is a part of you, Julie, which just fascinates me because I first met you at the Xana McDonald Summit in Brisbane in March. God, what's that, four months ago or something? Maths isn't a strong point about that. And one, you just had this incredible energy. You had this amazing way of sharing stories. You were friggin' funny and absolutely love that. But also, too, you have, which I'm really drawn to and fascinated by and kind of keen to flesh out, one, this career which has spanned, I guess, senior roles within KPMG in New Zealand, more recently New Zealand Stock Exchange. But what fascinated me is you've been able to be uniquely yourself in these different roles, present as yourself, but still kick ass and... I want to understand how did that all come about? How has that shaped you? As well as where's this passion and interest in agriculture, sustainability, and I guess everything that's future-focused, conversations, et cetera. So who knows where this is going to go? But I'm interested. Have, you've always been this quirky for sure, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Always. Quite, I'm sure if I was at school now, I'd be on, they'd put me on some sort of drugs or something. I'm sure I'd be diagnosed with something. But I have tried. Look, to be honest, it took me till probably 40 to feel really confident being myself 
but or maybe my mid thirties to be confident being myself. But I think I have just always naturally been myself, and I don't know if that's been by design. I think it's just been literally I don't know undiagnosed Tourette's. Can't keep it in. I just kind of will be really open and honest about things. I'm direct but not unkind. Okay, interesting. So to your mid thirties or early forties to actually bring this out, like how did it actually? come about was there a role change or something like that that actually gave you the opportunity to express yourself I think what happened was because I was in currency for a while and I loved that like about 10 years and I remember going for a leadership role and I was a bit of it and I just thought I was awesome like I just thought I was the best thing ever and they just said hey look no one would work for you you're awful and I was like what I'm but I'm amazing like you know if they have an issue with me that's clearly their problem and they were like no you can't lead teams and so all credit to ASB which is CBA for you guys they actually got me in a business coach who came in or life coach and she was just and it's I think for me and also one of my bosses gave me the book seven habits of highly effective people and you know the bit that hit me the most and this is how bad I was I literally read the book to begrudge him I didn't read it to make a difference. I read it because I was going to show him that he was wrong. And that first chapter where it talks about you're at your own, your funeral, there's a eulogy, what do they say about you? And there was just something that clicked. And I think the coach and the feedback is the thing that helped me realize that I was actually, you know, I was, I was just really high energy. I was great having a few beers with him and on the weekends, but I was a nightmare to work with, you know, literally to the point where, if I was out of the dealing room and someone else did a deal, I'd be like, well, I could have done more than that, made more than that. And you're just a dick. You know, I was a dick, basically. And then I think what happened was, is I got coaches and feedback and reflection. And, you know, this is where you start to realize that you're not actually being the person you really want to be. And you're actually, you don't like yourself. You know, you don't actually really enjoy that. You don't end the day feeling good about what you've said or done, especially when you're naturally a really caring, kind person. And so I guess it was just a bit of, and it sounds cheesy, a bit of a journey to actually just have confidence. And then, look, I did actually get into a leadership role. And when you're leading teams and you're leading people, that is the greatest honor, I believe, that you can have. It's the, And you've got to be really conscious about who you are. I don't believe a leader should make other people around them change to fit in with them. You've actually got to be the person that they need. And so that means being really agile, being really empathetic and and being direct and honest at the same time so they know what's expected. Yeah, so I think it's just been a series of really interesting events that helped me stop being a dick and actually realise to be a good human is actually about being honest, open and taking feedback. And, you know, I don't get it right all the time. I still fire up every now and then, but it's I'm also very open to people challenging me and saying, hey, you know, you were a bit of a dick and owning it when I am. It's really interesting. One of our values is literally just the words, be a good human. And someone asked me the other day, I said, what does that actually mean? And I was like, well, I said, it's open for interpretation, but it's open for interpretation because it means that there's then discussion. And so it is about being open, honest, acting with integrity. But if you think I'm not being a good human, then let's actually have a chat about it. And then I was like, God, I actually could lead us to being unstuck. But then I was like, well, actually it could if there's two people, but as a business, like we'd come together and work out if it came to that point of discussion okay well what actually is being a good human what are the characteristics of good humans in and around our workplace and what does that look like and then you'd be able to draw the parallels and go okay well who is being a good human who's potentially out of line or who's got yeah challenges here it's interesting i want to know so you've got this strong finance and agriculture kind of cross-sectional background what did you study at university um, I actually didn't go to university. I studied, sorry, I did go to university. I just didn't finish it. Um, I literally got employed into a dealing room because of my attitude and because 
I just was real like, I just wanted to do it. I was really driven. I was really staunch. And you kind of needed that because the dealers were quite staunch, like quite mean sometimes. And yeah, I did some study around business studies. So I did some papers. As I've got older, I've gone back and I've done like, I did a stint at the Harvard Business School and I've gone and done a short, like a boot camp thing at Stanford University as well. So, but yeah, the actual university side of it was business studies, but to be honest, I've just had to graft in the roles. Um, I don't suggest that for anyone. I think it makes it harder and it makes your journey a bit slower. And I think it does reduce your options. So I certainly wouldn't suggest that for anyone else. But if that is a pathway that people have taken where they haven't gone to university, that doesn't mean that you can't actually succeed and, and actually find roles within agriculture that are pretty awesome. And I just learned a lot. Like I just worked really hard in the dealing room. I don't think of myself as particularly smart. I don't, you know, people aren't seeking me out to split the atom at any point. And I think it's just about, you know, I just learn. I just get in there and just try real hard. I, I was lucky. I was always around real cool people who had lots of smarts that I could learn from. And I always found a passion. Like, I don't think I necessarily ever woke up one day and said, oh, I'm going to do this. Like, agriculture found me and I've never left it. Like, we've, agriculture and I have been married in, for 20 odd years. We did nearly get divorced last year when things in agriculture got a little bit like prickly, but it's just been in all my roles. Even when I was in currency, I used to do currency for farmers. And then I was in rural banking and I was obviously working with farmers and KPMG. I was working with farmers and NZX. I was working with farmers. And so it's always been in my world and I'm really passionate about it. But And it's always been around finance and I'm not actually sure why that finance found me. I want to know, before you got married to agriculture, what was the first encounter that drew you in, sucked you in? Yeah, look, it's actually was when I was in currency. I mean, obviously I'd grown up in rural communities, so it wasn't foreign to me, but I'd had a chap bring me who was a beef farmer who wanted to hedge his currency and we just had a blast. Like it was just cool. And there was something about it that I just, it was this person who was smart and he knew exactly what he needed and what he was looking for and he ran his really cool business. But then we had a big joke about stuff and it was just a really comfortable just a nice, and look, I was, you know, in my 20s, it was sometimes hard. You'd sort of get real, you know, the corporate guys would bring up. You know, I wasn't cool because I wasn't one of the cool guys that had been around for years that dealt with the big guys. And so, but this guy didn't care. He just thought I was like, he just wanted to have a yarn with someone. He, he respected my views and what I did. And then sort of like the second real second date was um, I actually got asked to speak at a thing called the Large Herds Conference, which you love this. Back in the day, it was like 350 cows on a dairy farm. And that's like, now everyone's like, oh, it's a hobby farm. And I literally talked about currency to a bunch of farmers because Fonterra were changing some of the things that they were doing. And I challenged some of Fonterra's communication, what well, not their currency stuff. And yeah, that was kind of my second date. And from there, we basically moved in together and got married the next day. And that was, I've never left it ever since. <laughs> no, even little things along the way. No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, I've, you know, I've eyed up the odd uh, other sector every now and then. We've had a little bit of, you know, I've given a wink to the thinking, oh yeah, maybe I just go into some sort of corporate line, but it's always led to agriculture, you know? And so your involvement has really kind of, I guess, grown from there as a keynote speaker, but the way that you can provide these insights in ways that really anyone, including me, can understand is such a unique trait that you've got? I think it's because I need to simplify things for me to understand and I need to have it as a story. It's sort of like my brain works and like I see a storyboard and I need to break things down. And I think for me, the one thing I'd say though with the keynote speaking is I've it's come from 20 years of working across the sector. 
And I sometimes get people say, well, how did you become a keynote speaker? How do I do that? And I think if you're 20 and you haven't actually done lots of jobs and you haven't actually built a background and got some cool competency, it's really hard to develop that because you've got nothing to speak about. Um, because often you're speaking about anecdotal things that have happened in your life over time and that happen. But yeah, for me, it's really important. I think one of my biggest frustrations through every job that I've had is there's always someone who wants to make something sound really complicated so they sound better. And we're seeing it now with sustainability. There's a whole lot of confusing conversations in sustainability that just blow it out of proportion, turn it into something it's not, and then it scares everyone. I don't think there's any value in scaring people. I think everyone, we don't know till we know. We don't know till we learn. And if we mystify everything and make it harder than it needs to be, then we have less people that are learning and we have less people on the journey with us working on it. And I just think it just doesn't add any value. And it's just, I just love it. I love being able to take, and I can't take all complex things and simplify them because I don't necessarily understand everything, but I'll spend time learning and picking people's brains and kind of going back to them with, does it mean this? And does it mean that? And it's just, yeah, it's just, I don't know. I, I guess it's my wee magic power, hopefully. Yeah, no, well, definitely. Because like I know, I use way too many words, asking questions, explaining things, way too many words. And it is honestly like it, the more simple that someone can articulate something, the smarter they are. Oh, I think it takes a big journey though. Like oh, It's amazing. Like, I'll write an article about something and I'll write it seven times because I'll write big, you know, explain everything. It was a Tuesday, you know, I was wearing a, you know, a blue shirt, blah, 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 you know, just to explain something really simple. And then it just takes, usually my original message is quite complicated or long. And then over time, the more I get to understand them and the more I talk to others about them, then they become more distilled. And I can get them down to a much quicker, simpler sentence. I do love words, though, and I will use lots of them. Mm-hmm. I do too. I want to flesh into your career a little bit more. Has your career been a series of deliberate decisions or have they been things that happened by chance and you kind of just followed it? I think it's a bit of both. You know, when I left the dealing room, that was a really conscious decision. Love the environment. It's high energy. You learn a lot. Just great people around you. Slightly mental, which I really found quite awesome. The thing was, though, is I looked at, I actually changed banks and I was away from one bank for five years and I went back to it. And I remember the moment where there were guys sitting next to each other who'd sat next to each other five years earlier complaining about the same things that they complained about five years before. And I was like, I've got to get out. Like, this is just going to be. And I rang um, Rural Banking, the managing director at the time of National Bank, and I said, I want to be a regional manager in rural banking. And he said, oh, there's no chance. You have none of the skills that we want. And I said, oh, okay, that's all right then. And so, and it literally went like Charlie was a man of very few words or is a man of very few words. And, and to be fair to him, he did say, he said, look, if you want to be a rural manager, and I was like, look, I'm, you know, at the time, you know, you always think you're a lot older than you are. At the time, I think I was 30 and I was like, well, you know, I don't have time. I don't want to be a rural manager. I want to just come and get into the regional manager and leadership staff. And yeah, and I applied for seven roles and I got turned down for six. <laughs> So that was very deliberate. I knew exactly where I wanted to go and what I wanted to get into. Like I knew that was a real deliberate move. KPMG wasn't. Like that was literally just pure universe delivering something freaking awesome that I didn't know I needed. You know, I got made redundant from rural banking. I mean, you know, it happens. And I was talking to a recruiter about how to go for a job because I'd like basically always been in the bank and I really had to ever really go for a job. And we were talking through and she's asked me what I like doing. And she's like, I've got the perfect role for you. And I was like, oh, yeah, thinking of this. And then she said KPMG. And I was like, oh, I don't want to go to an accounting firm. She's like, no, no, it doesn't. They're this big. And I didn't even understand what KPMG was. And 
And then, yeah, and then it just went from there. And so, so that was an accidental, I guess, serendipitous accident. Or I guess that's what serendipity is, but a serendipitous move. And, and NZX are probably a little bit more deliberate. And then now I'm back in a serendipitous world where I'm, I don't know, self-employed, I'm calling myself at the moment. Um, I appointed myself as Chief Hope Officer. Chief what? Hope. Chief Hope Officer. Who are you giving hope to? Anyone. You know, like, I think it's just, we need to reinstate hope. I mean, not as in, it's not like the secret book. It's not like you lie there and imagine things and then they happen, that kind of hope. I think it's just, we need to remind people that they are capable of navigating really gnarly situations, in particular our farming communities, regardless of what country they're in. This is not our first rodeo. This is not the hardest thing anyone's ever seen. And I think we are way more capable than we give ourselves credit to credit for. That's my goal. Bring hope back. That's cool. Tell me, I want to know on that, having to react to decisions that are completely out of your control. I think you just mentioned it there. Regional Bank, then also more recently, your time with NZX finished up after four odd years with them. Look, how did you react and how do you overcome those really life-changing decisions that you actually have zero control over? Yeah, I mean, with both, I've had teams that have been involved and I work really hard to look after my teams. And so I think, and maybe I use it as a distraction technique, but I tend to make sure they're okay first before I have a little meltdown. I don't wake up in the morning, you know, hearing birds singing and stuff. I can get up and I can be really down about it and get really upset. But look, it's, you know, not wanting to be too dramatic, but, you know, I had a reasonably dysfunctional kind of upbringing in a a functional, nice way. I mean, I had a lot of love and told that I was capable of anything, but, you know, my parents struggled a lot through financial alcoholism, things like that. And I think that's kind of cool. Like there's something, like I know that sounds terrible, but it was just a way that I grew up with lots of forced change, things that happened that were really shit that I didn't like and didn't want, but I learned really quickly that I could fight them. And I think having parents that fought, like they were constantly fighting change. They were constantly fighting the inevitable. They never had anything left in the tank to actually deal with the change. And so I think when I, you know, I feel sad and I feel upset when I get hit with these things. And, and you know, both redundancies kind of were hard for me. But I think at the end of the day, you sit there and go, okay, what needs to be done? And you first triage. So you're like, who do I need to worry about? What do I need to do? You know, you look at your financial situation, you look at all these things and you just get on with it. Like you can't change it. I'm not saying it's to expect anything in the world that happens to you, but there's so many things that are going to happen that are going to get forced upon you and you just cannot spend waste energy fighting the inevitable change that happens. Hey, it's Nick here, Sheep Farmer and Rabobank Regional Client Council member. I'm passionate about supporting our local community so we can improve community wellbeing and build strong local economies. My job as a client council member is to help secure funding for regional grassroots initiatives. Those that support education in ag, rural health, sustainability, and help bridge the country-city divide. We've helped organisations like Boys to the Bush, funded school field days like Ag Vision, and held succession planning workshops, just to name a few. If you have an idea to make a difference to regional Australia, go to our website at www dot rabobank.com.au and nominate via our community fund. We'd love to hear from you. So when those things happen, and I'm interested on, on the team side of things, did you first go, okay, shit, I need to actually get myself sorted here? Or did you go straight to the team going, okay, this has happened, need to help the team cope through it? Both times it's been about the team. 
So it's been, you know, for example, with NZX, you know, I was actually in the office in Wellington. I got told and I had to go back into an office where I couldn't tell anyone and I just had a bomb dropped. Now, I could have easily gone back and been a bit of a bitch or whatever or sulked, but, you know, at the end of the day, and look, I'm not trying to say I'm like freaking perfect, by the way, because in my head I'm like my wheels are spinning, but I kind of stopped and thought it's not actually everyone else's fault and it's not everyone else's problem and I'm not leading if I'm creating discomfort in everyone else to support my own needs. And again, and you know, it takes you a while to get there. I mean, even with ANZ, it was, I had a huge team there, you know. And again, it was a big process so that, that I couldn't go out and tell the team I had to wait. You know, it was a week, I think, until we told the team. So, you know, you kind of got to be really clear about what you're doing and how you're doing it. And I had sort of 27 or 8 people on my team at the time. So, and we had business to do and we had, and you know, same with NZX, you still got business to do. You still got things to get done. I'm a really commercial person. So, you know, you can't let your own craziness <laughs> If it hits you, overtake it. But it's also, I talk to people. You know, I'm really lucky. I'm a talker. So I will ring someone and say, oh my God, this has happened. I feel terrible. What am I going to do? I'm going to flab. And then by the time I've ended the phone call, I mean, they probably feel terrible, but I feel a lot better. (laughs) And I think in that context, it's been able to process that. But what I never did was process that with my team. Like it was never right for me to have a conversation and say, I feel sad or upset or I wasn't dishonest. I didn't tell them I felt thought it was great and amazing, but I would tell them that I'm dealing with it and I'm okay. And I just, I think that was the reassurance that I'm fine, that they needed to think about themselves. I'm really interested over your career, how, and the the quote you said before about the leader needs to be the person that your team need and you need to be direct and honest when needed. So how did that actually come about for you? And were the people that you potentially modeled yourself off the good examples, bad examples or somewhere in between? Yeah, probably really good examples. I've been really lucky with the leaders I've had around. I think some of them have been terrible and you learn from terrible leaders as well. There was a guy, he was a CEO of ASB, um, a guy, uh, Hugh Burrett, and he was just such a cool leader. You know, he knew people's names. He was really charismatic, but not mommy with it. You know, he just, I think he had a saying that every day is show day. So basically the idea was, you know, every day turn up, every day turn up and be. I remember going to him one day and saying, I want to be a CEO by the time I'm 40. And he said, then you need to get out of the dealing room because that's not going to be the pathway that's going to take you anywhere. And, and it wouldn't have been, you know, you it's great, but you stay in there and you'd never get out. And so those sorts of leaders around me, I think I watched some of the leaders in rural banking who were just, they created these awesome environments. They had these great teams. Sometimes they were really hard-nosed. They weren't always the fluffy people. But it was what I learned is leadership wasn't about being kind and loving. It was actually about being honest and supportive. And so you you could actually be grumpy. Like some of the grumpiest, oldest dudes around in rural banking were the best, best leaders. You knew where you stood, you know, what they expected from you, and they were the first to tell you you'd done a good job when you'd done a good job. And so learning from that, but... Yeah, I think that's probably about it is around the, the teams is just making sure and look, getting it wrong too. Like I, you know, I got a team, keeping in mind I applied for seven jobs and got turned down for six. So when they had finally given me one, they gave it to me because they needed a woman. So I kind of, you know, got the job for all the wrong reasons. And I was really conscious of that. Like my worry, I rang my sister Haley, and I was crying and I was like, oh, okay, you only gave me a job because I'm a woman. Isn't that funny though? You really want a job and then you get it and then you're upset. Ugh. and so I and she just said to me it doesn't matter why you got it it's what you do with it now and I think for me it was about making sure that I represented anyone that would come after me 
and because I was the first woman to be appointed into one of these roles, but I was pretty green. I hadn't actually led a team before. I hadn't led a lent a dollar before, and the GFC was pending. So you know, this was if you want to have baptism by fire, there were flames raging off me. And so I think some of my leadership came, my skills came from getting things wrong in the first couple of years. But I adapted really fast. I had a coach that I used that was one of the dusty old sea dogs out of rural banking that had been there, done that. And I used reflection tools with him and I would talk through my day and he would say, look, you know, you might want to think about this. So it was was really about surrounding myself with people who could help me. You're never going to learn alone. How much time do you reckon, like when you've been managing these things, how much time would you say actually you were dedicating and spending on reflecting, thinking about team things, working with people in your team? Oh, all the time at the end of every day. It would literally be, and sometimes it would be, I don't want this day to end because it's just been one of those moments where you're you're sitting there and, you know, would help a farmer do something amazing. You know, you're helping the sector. You've got your team really humming. And then you've got other days where during the GSC, we had several people off on stress leave. And I'm talking seasoned rural bankers that had seen it all under extreme stress. And those are the times when you really reflect on what are you doing right? What are you doing wrong? How do you need to change it? You know, the person you upset just send a group email out saying they're great and they don't want to have group recognition. They want it to be quiet and you you just learn, right? Your reflection is daily because you either have a great moment or a bad moment and you have to consciously stop and think, what could I have done better or what could I have done differently? And so a question, maybe a little bit of advice. Lots of younger people, I guess, who are starting to manage people might only be a couple of people on, say, a family farm in agribusiness. It might be a really growing team. What's your advice to them about stepping into that management space and starting their own journey of managing leading people in a business context? Oh, it's a tough one. You know, be prepared to get it wrong, but be prepared to own the wrong. You know, if you do cock it up, you go off at someone because you're a bit tired or whatever, then then own it and apologize. But also understand why you did it and don't do it again. You know, actually evolve and learn. Get help from people around you, you know. So there would have been someone in their life that would have been an awesome leader. Go and ask them, even if you catch up with them every six weeks for a coffee, just to have a chat and or on the phone or whatever, just to talk about it. But just think about it as an honor to lead people. Don't think of it as, if you don't like leading people, please don't lead them. Like get a job where you don't need to or get someone in to do it for you. And because I really think that it's, everyone has the right to be led in a great way and read stuff, you know, read leadership books and, and you don't have to be super cheesy about it. It's, you know, but hey, read a couple of things of Simon Sinek or whatever. You know, your industry bodies, so like I know Dairy NZ in New Zealand has so much HR support, like right the way through to how you run a review, how you do management meetings, you know, with your farm managers, all these things. So actually get these resources and actually don't try and tough it out. And, you know, just remember, if you think everyone that you hire is a dick, you're the only common denominator. I like that. You know, that's if you're constantly hiring dicks, then there's something wrong with you, not the people you're hiring. Very wise. And we've all heard it, right? We've always heard, I keep hiring idiots or, you know, it's like, really? Another thing, well, I want to talk, like start to move, I guess, a little bit down the sustainability, where the world's heading, et cetera. But I really love when it's on your LinkedIn bio, but you say you're never really living in the moment, but always being excited about the future and what it drives. So is that something you're starting to get better at, slowing down, being in the moment, or are you constantly chasing this thing off in the distance? I think I don't know if I'm slowing down. I think some days I want to, but I've always kind of been, and I don't want to sound like I'm not like Notre Dame, so I can't see the future, but I tend to hook into themes 
that are emerging globally that no one else is interested in at the time. And then once they're really cool, I get bored with them. So at KPMG, I did about six years of research on alternative proteins. Now, that was a real way to wind people up at the time. You know, and I didn't, I didn't eat them or anything. It wasn't that I was trying to consume them. I just wanted to understand. Like, you can't help a farmer understand what's happening and how to best grow or any kind of disruptors that are coming at them if you don't understand it yourself. So I think for me, it was really just about learning as much as I could about it. And I was just curious about it, you know, and then with sustainability, same thing, you know, this thing around climate and carbon and we're kind of lucky in egg because we've really been talking about sustainability for about 20 odd years. We just didn't know it was called sustainability. And then when ESG came through, I was like, geez, what's this thing? So I had to Google that to find out what it was. And then I thought, oh, this looks pretty cool. You know, this is, and so I just started talking to people and I went and researched and I went and I'm a stalker. Like, I'll just go stalk someone. I'll just be like, hey, I've just seen you on blah, blah, blah. You know, sometimes people don't respond. Sometimes they do. And you just have a conversation with them and you want to learn about it. And so I think I've always enjoyed a theme that isn't cool yet. And I I want to learn as much as I can about it. And then when everyone else is into it, I'm like, eh, need the next thing. So what are some of those themes that you're that are occupying your days now that you who are you stalking and what are they talking about? Oh, so biodiversity is a big thing at the moment. I don't know if that's I mean, look, don't get me wrong, I'm not a major futurist. So I usually I'm five years out or ten. I'm not a fifty years out gal, kind of gal. But biodiversity is a massive thing that it's a conversation that's growing globally. I went and did a bit of a study tour last year and went and met with BlackRock. They're a big investment firm in New York and in San Francisco. I met them in both spots. And biodiversity, again, is there. And I think when you think of farming, this is our superpower. Biodiversity is our superpower because we, we have to farm to nature. Otherwise, we don't get to farm anymore. And it's the biodiversity conversation needs to grow. I think as a farming community globally, we need to own the narrative in that and make sure that we're not assigned one. We actually need to step up. And I think we're very humble in agriculture and we don't tend to necessarily... We either have tractors up the steps or we say nothing. And I think we need to find a middle ground and we need to be really that biodiversity topic is massive. It's freaking exciting. That'll be the next thing that comes to us. And you know what I love about it is climate. You know, climate is important, but I think some of the climate and carbon conversation becomes very narrow. So we have unconsidered consequences. So we can't put trees everywhere, right? We can't offset. I call it carbon Catholicism. You know, you basically sin and then you repent. And it's just, there's no change in behavior. And that was never the way it was meant to be, right? We were never meant to have that kind of, it was meant to change behavior. But (laughs) when you look at biodiversity, you know, it takes in water and it takes in community, it takes in culture, it takes in all these incredible things. And all of a sudden you start to fix some of the climate issues and you actually start to handle the carbon space. So I know I think that's a bigger, better more positive and more effective conversation than being really narrow in that carbon conversation. Well, it makes it more holistic, doesn't it? Because where carbon, we're literally black and white. There is more going out, less going in, whatever it might be. Whereas biodiversity is, the challenge of it is hugely complex, touches everything, but it also allows you to go, okay, so we're going to do X over here, but then that's going to affect Y. How does that then affect the picture that we're creating? Interesting. It's bringing everything together. It's bringing species. It's bringing culture. It's bringing everything into it. You know, this land that we live on. Look, I have such a small piece of land, but, you know, two weeks ago it went underwater. We had so much rain. I literally had a lake here. It was the most confronting and surreal experience I've ever had to wake up and open my curtains and literally just see a body of water. But, you know, when you go through this new experience and you touch and feel land, you actually start to appreciate the species and the connection that we all require in the soil and all these things. And it's not just one thing. There's never going to be one magic bullet 
or a solution. It's going to be a series of events or series of things that are going to work together. And that's what I love about biodiversity. Certainly interesting. And it is so intertwined with ag. Anything else in this crystal ball? It's crystal ball thing, this one. I think there's some reset coming and I don't know if it's a social reset or a financial reset, like something, I think there's an apocalypse. Don't get me wrong, I'm not being, you know, there's not a catastrophizing things. I just feel like how we see economics is going to change. And, you know, everyone hates GDP as a measure, but nobody's come up with a better measure. So people keep coming up with happiness measures and all these things. At the end of the day, even happiness costs money, right? They've got to pay to live. So, you know, I just think that how we see economics is going to have to shift because it's going to have to take into account our environment, our people, how people live, our communities. We've got a lot around the world. There's kind of an uprising. And how do we actually address that? And how do we support our communities? How do we make sure our vulnerable are looked after? Yeah, it's interesting. Was it, I reckon it was you that mentioned that GDP thing. Someone else mentioned it and it was might have even been an Australian like demographer type person talking about it and asking like, well, why are we actually using it as a measure? Because all it's doing is measuring one little thing <laughs> as opposed to the health and status of a society. And we're measuring growth. What we're saying is, hell yeah, grow, man, use more, use more, use more. And I think there's kind of this degrowth. That's probably another thing coming through. There's this degrowth. Like how do we maintain relevance and prosperity while degrowing? You know, like we actually have to kind of shrink ourselves to success. So a question, what's making you optimistic about the future, especially in and around agriculture, maybe? It's food, it's nutrition, it's micronutrients, it's our life, it's our life body. It's the thing that keeps us ticking, you know, some of those micronutrients you can't get in anything else. And so I think, and it's the passion of the people and it's the, look, I've got this hilarious photo that I show in New Zealand and there's a guy, Chris Lewis, and I got one of his cattle from his dairy cows, right? And there's someone then photoshopped him on the top of it, like Putin, you know, like shirtless. On the, and, you know, like it's that stuff. It's the fact that when I accidentally left all my gates open and there was over 600 bales of hay cart there and I sent an SOS out to a couple of mates and they turn up and there's one of the guys' wives swearing at me, telling me how much she hates me right now because they want to go away on holiday. But they're there with their trailer and their 10-year-old's driving the ute and we're picking up hay. And that's what keeps me passionate about agriculture because we never, ever lose our ability to actually get up the next day and care about each other and care about our animals. And I think that's what we don't show the world. I think that's one of those things that we don't often show the world. And I'm just super positive about it. We've got cool young people who are desperate to get into the sector that can't wait to get in and make a difference. And they want to be exciting and they want to use technology and they want to do the right thing financially and they want to bring everyone on board with it. And they just, they're great with social media and they're great with storytelling. And Again, we've been through this before. We've been through tough times. You know, if we resurrected our them and our forefathers, I'm sure they'd tell us a few tales of woe. And the future is massive and it's so bright. But it's going to be hard because life's hard. It's not an Instagram post. There's no filter on it. Unfortunately, we actually are just going to have to go through a bit of a journey and there's going to be ups and there's going to be downs and we're going to grow the most on the downs. And sometimes, like an Instagram post, does your page reflect the real world or is it just the good parts? Well, I actually was so bad with Instagram, I got kicked off it. Not because I did anything wrong. I just put my wrong age in. I wasn't paying attention to it. And then I can't wait to get back on. But my little pony has an Instagram page, Landshark, New Zealand. So he's got that. And I think on LinkedIn, my page definitely reflects reality. Like I'm pretty raw on there. I love it. I love that post you put up the other day, was it? So about you were emceeing. It was the first time that you ever got to stand on stage and talk. It was something agriculture, but also about sex. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And it was really funny because I hadn't read it all. 
that's right everybody wants to have more and good sex and I was like oh geez I'm gonna have to read this out and I was but it was great you know I was I got through it I'm quite immature so inside I was like yeah you get to say sex on stage (laughs) oh well I can't wait to see you around it to another ag event here in Australia soon a few questions to finish off JJ okay first one is there something that you're trying to overcome, address, whatever it might be today that you could use humans of agriculture's help? Probably not my brain, but just humans of agriculture. Yeah, I think it's that bringing that self-belief back to our farmers to remind them that no matter what challenges are here, because there is going to be a lot of things that we don't know are coming at us yet. And there's a lot of uncertainty, but to actually just focus on what you can control today, stop worrying about what you can't control and have the wisdom to know the difference. And I think it's really, you know, that would be a big part of it. We got this. We can do this. It is hard. It's a bit exhausting. Also, maybe those people who don't think they can do it anymore and it's not for them anymore is actually allow them to exit with beautiful pride and dignity. Mm, I love that. So much of it is mindset, isn't it? And it is this shift. I don't want to say it's a social shift, but it, we've really started to see it infiltrate the areas of sport, your Ash Barties, your Dylan Alcott's, the, who they are is different to what they do. And I think it's the same I think we're slowly, well, actually, no, we haven't even started to see it into agriculture. I think that natural evolution, but I do love that, allowing people to exit with dignity. That's cool. Now, this one, I'm fascinated to hear what you say here. If you get the chance to head down, no, nah, actually, you can come over here to Australia. You get the chance to go and chat to year 10 students in a metro area, have no idea about agriculture. What would you say to them about why they should consider a career in it? I've got three things for them. One, no matter what you want to do, we've got it for you in agriculture. So if you want to be in tech, data, marketing, even capital markets, finance, banking, farming, genetics, science, we have got a role for you no matter what. I'd say also don't limit yourself to a title. Don't get stuck on a title because I think in agriculture, the cool thing is there's so much evolving that there are roles that don't exist today that will be around in two, three, four years. So don't limit themselves when they're thinking about a future. Don't say, I want to be a, a fireman or a, you know whatever. I mean, unless you really want to be a fireman. But I mean, if you're thinking of, I'm not sure, then don't necessarily limit it to a title. Don't get hung up on it. And don't think you have to stay forever in an industry. There's so much power in cross-pollination. There's so much power in bringing someone that's been in tech, out of tech into ag. And that was one of the good things about COVID is some people, I mean, sorry to the people who lost their jobs and stuff, but some people came out of roles you know we had pilots on farms and we had all these things and this interesting intersection of information and knowledge and I think the simple message is there is something for everyone it doesn't matter what you want to do and you will not work in a more rewarding cool fun insane frustrating just mental just progressive fast-paced environment than agriculture so there is no way you can't find something you'd want to do in ag I love it What's a question you've got for a future guest? I would ask what their greatest wish for agriculture is. Can I ask you that? Are you going to ask me it? Well, I'll ask a future guest as well, but I'd be interested. What's your wish? Oh, uh, Jesus, I didn't think that one through. But I think my greatest wish is that in agriculture, we, again, get focused on the things that we can control. We're distracted. We've become really political. Politics is politics. Leave it to the politicians. It's, you know, a lot of regulation that's coming through is a symptom of societal change. Let's not get hung up fighting the things that we can't touch. I don't mean that we shouldn't stick up for ourselves and I don't mean that we shouldn't push back. I just think we've become so politicised. My greatest wish is that we get back to being, having pride 
and hope for the future and actually just focusing on what we can control and being the people that we are, which is about community, which is about making things great, which is growing things, whether it be growing a cow or maybe next year or next in 10 years we're growing something else as long as we connect to our land and our people and our community and our family. My greatest wish is that we get back to why, remembering why we're doing this and stop getting hung up and distracted by stuff that is just irrelevant. Leave the politics to the politicians. They're going to play whatever games they want to play and they're going to say whatever they've got to say and they're going to do whatever they want to do. If you want to be a politician, go be one. Don't bring it into farming. You could do it in agriculture, Minister for Agriculture. <laughs> I think it'd be too crazy. I wouldn't mind working for the minister and getting some shit done, but it's, um, I don't know. I'd want to be the minister. <laughs> well, JJ, we unfortunately won't see you when you come across this way to Geelong in a few weeks, but I wish we were. But we can't wait to see what happens as the Chief Hope Officer and what's next for you. And, yeah, I'm looking forward to sharing this episode with everyone. Is there anything else you want to add? No, I'm excited to come into Australia and I'm hoping to do more trips. I'm back in October as well for the National Farmers Federation, have I said that right, conference as well in Canberra. So, yeah, I love Australian farming. I just think there's just, you know, when I think of Australia, I just think of it's biblical, you know. <laughs> it's it's very biblical, the farm. You should come over here. Move over. I know. I need to get over more. Mark Ferguson has told me that he'll take me to the outback somewhere and let me ride a horse. So Sounds pretty good. I mean, I don't know if he's been serious, but I'm going to hold him to it. Yeah, no, he said it now. And it's on the record. It's on our podcast. So bad luck, Mark Ferguson. <laughs> well, thank you, JJ, for that. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for another episode from us here at Humans of Agriculture. We hope you're enjoying these podcasts. And, well, if you're not, let us know. Hit us up at hello at humansofagriculture.com. Get in touch with any guest recommendations, topics, or things you'd like us to talk and get curious about. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Rate, subscribe, review it. Any feedback is absolutely awesome and we really do welcome it. So look after yourselves, stay safe, stay sane. We'll see you next time. See ya.